Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Michael Flynn has left the courthouse after entering a guilty plea to making false statements to FBI agents. And uh, we did get that statement uh, from Flynn's attorney. We also are getting a statement from President Trump's lawyer, Ty Cobb. Uh, I will read the whole thing to you. It is, quote, today, Michael Flynn, a former national security advisor at the White House for 25 days during the Trump administration and a former Obama administration official, entered a guilty plea to a single count of making a false statement to the FBI. The false statements involved mirror the false statements to the White House officials, which resulted in his resignation in February of this year. Nothing about the guilty plea or the charge implicates anyone other than Mr. Flynn. The conclusion of this phase of the special counsel's work demonstrates again that the special counsel is moving with all deliberate speed and clears the way for a prompt and reasonable conclusion. Here with us to discuss the process that Mueller is going through and to uh, sort of speak about uh, what went into or likely went into this plea agreement is June Grasso, host of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Best. Thank you so much for joining us, June. Uh, Pleasure. So so let's start with with just that. I mean, what what do you think reasonably went into this plea that we saw today from Michael Flynn? Well, I think what you have to look at is the fact that he is pleading guilty to one count of lying to federal investigators. Even in the information itself, it lists two separate instances of lying. So this is a very good deal for him. It's it's a one felony count that's as much as five years. What's happening is he has admitted in a statement today he is cooperating with Mueller, and he must have some very important information to give him. And he's also, it's said that he was instructed by people in the transition team to, he called them before he made these approaches to the Russians. So you have to look at what's going on. And remember, if you put it in context, two days after this meeting, you had former Deputy uh, Attorney General Sally Yates warning the Trump White House that Flynn was a security risk. And you had, after that, you had President Trump allegedly asking Jim Comey for that oath of loyalty. So if you put all this in context, you can see that he is building his case. Well, I'm just wondering, though, what this sort of plea deal does to Michael Flynn's credibility, because, you know, how much could people say, well, he's going to say all sorts of stuff because he's trying to get his son off and he's trying to get himself a sweet deal and he has serious charges pending. So, yeah, he'll throw President Trump under the bus. That's what people say that all the time about cooperators. And you know what? Juries believe cooperators almost every single time. It's not just his word. He's Mueller is an, is really building such a strong case. He's going to be backed up by so many other people, by evidence, by papers. And this isn't the end. Um, Mueller is not stopping here. So and people, you know, there are there are cases where there are murderers. I can think of, you know, the, the mob cases where people get on the stand and they admit to killing people. You think of, of some of the famous mob cases and everyone says, well, who's going to believe a cooperator? He's, he's making a deal. But juries believe cooperators every day of the week in courthouses across the country. 
June, uh, we were speaking earlier with uh, Marty Schenker, Bloomberg uh, Chief Content Officer, and one of the things he brought up is that uh, Robert Mueller and the investigators and the FBI, they have uh, perhaps wiretaps. They have a variety of interviews with people that we don't know about. So is it a poss- is, is it is the way the case is built is that in the example of Michael Flynn, you present him with evidence that he may not know that you have. The, the way the FBI often operates, and in this instance, it looks like that's what happened because he lied to them. The FBI, when they interview these people, has information and they ask them questions about it, but they withhold some information. They don't they don't give it all at once. And then they bring them back, and there's a process of going back and forth. It, it can go in different ways. In this case, it may have been with his lawyer, where they started to negotiate and say, look, we have this, and here's, you know, what can you give us? It seems to me as if Flynn is giving them a lot. Because remember, it's not just these charges. They're, they also have... a. a investigations of his his uh, dealings with Turkey, his failure to make make statements about uh, being a foreign advisor. They have all that, and none of that is here, and neither is his son. Remember, we've talked before about how his son was under investigation and how that might be the real button that would push him to cooperate. So here's something that I'm trying to understand. How long was Michael Flynn cooperating with the Mueller investigation? I know we don't know exactly, but uh, the reason why I ask is because if he's been cooperating with them for months, that means that Mueller has been building his case with Flynn's help, and all of this obviously is speculation, for a longer period of time. Do you think that this is more recent than that? I don't know that it's months. I think that they have been going back and forth and negotiating perhaps for months. But you see, so on this in this indictment, they allege that he lied on January 24th. So you know that at that point, he's not cooperating with them. Then they have to go through all of what, you know, federal prosecutors and the FBI does in bringing information forward in trying to show them what what they do is they show you a lot of what they have against you. They lay out the case against you. And then you either decide, okay, I'm going to go to trial on this or I'm going to work with them. And in this case, he said, I'm going to work with them. And then what will happen is as this goes along, he'll they'll see how much his cooperation is worth. How much does he give them? And then he'll come down to the point where the the sentencing is done and depending on how he cooperates. So based on what he's pleading pleading to, do you think that he gave them a lot? Yes, a lot, a lot, because this is, as I said, one count of lying to federal, which is five years maximum. But it's one count. And there are two there are two counts right here in the in the information. So and, and a lot more. And so I think that he is going to be a linchpin. I think we're going to see. People fall. Remember some of the meetings that he was in on. Other people were in on those meetings with him. So he wasn't alone. So this is just the first. And I think it's it's sort of telling that Mueller did it on a Friday because it it takes the news cycle through the weekend. Well, the other thing that's telling is he's doing it on the Friday that the GOP is holding their tax. But I don't know if that's deliberate, but uh, we'll we'll be talking about that throughout the day and what this does. Uh, Pim to those GOP efforts. I, you have to wonder uh, whether they can pass this bill. Right, today. right. Well, I, and, and just quickly, June Grasso, uh, Prosecutor Brandon Van Grack 
said in court that, quote, a very senior member of the transition team directed Michael Flynn to contact the Russian ambassador at one point. That will come back and hurt somebody? Yes. Uh, who? And the question is, who is that transition member? Did that transition member have a direct line to President Trump? Or, you know, it, it, you have to see that we only see one little part. He is connecting all kinds of things, and they probably have a huge board up or several huge boards around their offices with the connections. Thank you very much. June Agrasso, uh, host of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Best. Joining us now is Marty Shanker, Chief Content Officer for Bloomberg. Marty, what do we know at this point, and just how serious is this? It's pretty serious. Uh, and as the markets are reflecting for the first time in quite a while, uh, it poses a serious threat to the president uh, of the United States, Donald Trump, in that uh, Michael Flynn is reporting in his plea agreement that he's going to cooperate with the Mueller investigation. Well, it's almost as if you can watch the VIX and figure out how important is the news. The VIX is now up nearly 30 percent. Marty, uh, was anybody not expecting a a plea deal? No, I mean, I think that it was a question of when rather than whether. We knew that um, Bob Mueller had uh, interviewed Michael Flynn and that he had made some statements which were at odds with what he told the FBI. Um, the question was the timing, uh, and the idea would be that he would uh, ag- reach an agreement that would keep the, his charges to a minimum. And in fact, there was some thought that his son himself would be indicted, and that, at least for now, has not happened. So was, the question is, was that part of the agreement? So the fact that Bob Mueller has come forward today with and with the guilty plea means he's ready to move forward with his investigation. Moving forward, and this this is important also, Marty, the, the time frame going forward for Mueller, because a lot of people were wondering, you know, is he moving slowly? Is he moving quickly? Uh, it seems like there's been a lot behind the scenes to get to this point with Michael Flynn. Uh, how quickly could things accelerate at this point? I mean, could we see an, uh, another charge come out within the next few weeks? Well, it you know, first of all, there's no reason why not why he couldn't do a superseding indictment of Michael Flynn should he feel he is not cooperating fully with his wait, investigation. Wait. Superseding right? superseding indictment. Can you just explain what that is? Well, I mean, just because he's pled guilty to one charge does not mean he can't come forward with more charges. Uh, should he, Mike Flynn, or anyone else fail to provide? Uh, a full and uh, transparent accounting of what happened during that transition. So um, this sort of guarantees that Michael Flynn will fully cooperate lest he face further charges if for some reason he stops. But the the documents that, uh, that were filed in court uh, that explain the details of the plea agreement make it quite clear that Mike Flynn is ready to testify against senior administration officials that they had established contact with the Russians before Donald Trump officially became president, which could constitute a violation of the Logan Act. Well, apparently, uh, and Marty, you tell us if this is wrong, speaking in court as part of the plea agreement, uh, Flynn said that Trump's team asked him to make contact with Russians and that he told the incoming administration what he was doing. Yes. And just to mention, in in, uh, context, there's a statement that's been released by Lieutenant General 
uh, Michael Flynn. And just part of it, he talks about the painful uh, many months of false accusations of treason and other outrageous acts. He says, such false accusations are contrary to everything I have ever done and stood for, but I recognize that the actions I acknowledged in court today were wrong, and through my faith in God, I'm working to set things right. My guilty plea and agreement to cooperate with the special counsel's office reflect the decision I made in the best interest of my family and our country. I accept full responsibility for my actions. Uh, is this going to spur, do you believe, any other individuals to come forward who are perhaps not necessarily the focus of uh, Robert Mueller's investigation? Because if one person knows something, you got to think that there are other people in the same room. Well, uh, but, you know, we have we and others have reported over the last few months that various members of the Trump transition team, some who are still in the White House, some who have left the White House, John Spicer, for instance, have been interviewed by Mueller. So it was probably uh, uh, people's descriptions of what it's like to be interviewed by the FBI are quite chilling. It's uh, a moment where. Uh, you have uh, you 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 have to make sure that you are telling the absolute truth because you don't do not know what Bob Mueller knows. Um, don't forget the FBI is conducting this investigation. They have there's reports of you know wiretap surveillance. They have audio of conversations. So um, there has already been many many people who have already been interviewed by Mueller. Could there be more? It's possible, and we have no indication whatsoever that he has actually interviewed the president of the United States. In fact, we've been told just the opposite, that that, that has not taken place. Uh, Marty, uh, just real quick here, I want to get your take on how important this whole development is for the GOB tax plan. And the reason why I say that is because uh, markets are continuing to sell off. The, the S&P 500 has bounced back a little bit, but the dollar has continued to fall. 10-year yeah. uh, yields still down, as well as 30-year yields. So I'm just wondering, I mean, does this throw a kink into the Republican agenda or is this a sideshow? No, it, it could slow things down. No. And, you know, we can speculate wildly about what happens next. But I think the markets are now focused on what does President Trump do? Does he remain silent? There's been speculation over months of what he would do with Robert Mueller once he gets closer to the White House. He doesn't, you know, there's a controversy of whether he could fire Bob Mueller. We think he probably can't, but he can set in motion a process in which he could remove him. And that is, I think, what the markets are concerned about. Uh, that would create a constitutional crisis and everything uh, gets put on hold, including the tax bill. And just also to add that, uh, that Michael Flynn, the charges that are being talked about has to do with conversations between uh, Flynn and the Russian ambassador. Thanks very yes. much, uh, Marty Schenker, Bloomberg uh, Chief Content Officer. Tax overhaul in Washington. How does it affect corporations? Well, let's find out more from Joel Stern. He is the chairman, chief executive officer of Stern Value Management, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Joel, thank you for coming in. You know, uh, one of the things I wanted to just begin by putting out to you is your thoughts about the tax deductibility of the interest expense when corporations issue debt. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that but also, you've spoken about the money that companies 
think about spending when they look at research and development right. and how we seem to have rules and regulations that really contradict what we really are trying to achieve. Is that right. accurate? Yeah, it is. Uh, I think maybe we should start with the second instead of the first. Firms invest money in R&D. You know, Intel, billions, right, every year. Uh, Coca-Cola, building brand value. Uh, Goldman Sachs, training and developing their people. These are called intangible assets. And so what the accountants do with this is they write it off immediately. Peter Drucker, the great management guru and professor at Claremont College, he had a very interesting comment in one of his books. It's called Out of Sight, Out of Mind. What gets measured gets managed. What that means is that if people are spending money, as they should, on these things, how is the board of directors going to hold them accountable in future years for earning a proper return on that investment if the investment doesn't show up on the balance sheet? Okay, that's a very big thing with me, and I work with my clients to try to show them what they need to do. That is, they need to have their own balance sheet and their own income statement where they then can hold their people accountable properly. That's, that's the answer to that, that, that part of the issue. Well, and the, yeah. the, research, the issue, I bring this up because research and development yeah. costs yeah. do not, when you spend money as a corporation on research and development, that does not look good on the balance sheet. Well, why? Well, the accountants claim they're being conservative by assuming that those investments don't work out. Is that sensible? The most important thing to do is to follow the trail of cash and say to people, we're going to give you this cash in the firm to, 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 to manage people or build brand value and the like, but we have to hold you accountable for delivering on the investment. Otherwise, everybody can ask for money. Wouldn't you ask for money if nobody said to you, you'd have to tell us what you did with it and how well you did? It seems to me it's just wrong. That's all. I want to I want to move to the first part of Pim's yeah. question because mm. that's uh, very uh, current with respect to the tax plan that right. does plan mm. to limit some of the uh, tax deductibility of interest payments that companies pay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm wondering at mm. that level, we are seeing some language that would even have a bigger effect than previously expected on uh, highly leveraged companies right. with respect to the mm. lack of deductibility here. I'm just wondering, what do you expect the consequences to be should the bill get passed? I mean, does this mean that uh, highly leveraged companies are going to have a harder time refinancing? Does it mean that they're going to not, mm. uh, not take on as much leverage? Let me step back from this. Please. There's a huge problem here. If the interest is tax deductible, professors of finance everywhere teach that for every $1 that a firm borrows, the value of their shares goes up by whatever the tax rate is times that dollar. So let's assume the tax rate was 40% at the corporate level. It is close to that if you include city and state, by the way. So let's assume it's 40%. That means for every $1 of debt on the balance sheet, the market value of the shares is higher by 40 cents. So this is a very appealing thing. What stop, what, what, why don't companies have lots more leverage? The answer, what about the associated uh, bankruptcy risk on the other side of the equation? We call it the cost of financial distress. So we're balancing the cost of financial distress against the benefits of the tax benefit. But, but just extrapolating out here, yeah. this, is, this is really important because yeah. if uh, companies borrowing Mm -hmm. boost stock prices and companies are disincentivized from borrowing due to the tax plan since they won't be uh, it won't be treated as beneficially if they reduce leverage that will give less of a boom yes to wait stocks. it's even worse than that listen okay. to this lisa the most interesting thing about this is that if the trump tax bill is approved as we expect it 
uh, with the numbers that I'm telling you, the 20%. It means that the tax benefit of debt has now been reduced by, say, close to half. And maybe the risk of bankruptcy on the other side overwhelms the tax benefit. Say, you say to me, give me an example. How about all of the highly cyclical industries that have very high fixed operating expenses, so their, their profits and cash are very volatile over time? I got news. Those companies better look at this very carefully. I'm talking about cement. I'm talking about uh, steel, aluminum, glass, uh, industrial machinery, machine tools, textiles. These are companies that are very volatile during the business cycle. And my prediction is that if they don't examine this very carefully, a lot more of those companies are likely not to make it through the next recession. So when you look at the details as much as you can of the tax overhaul right. uh, bill, uh, what would you like to see in it and what would you like to see out of it? Okay, let me say it again. Uh, that's a great question, but my brain does not, not function the way yours does. Here's my suggestion. I think companies have got to take a look at this risk versus reward, which is now going to be much less, okay? And what they've got to say to themselves is, what are my alternatives? Now, there is an alternative, and it's used of all places in South Africa. Can you believe that? I just came back from Cape Town for some Gucci Gucci with my, my grandkids, okay? Three and four years old, they're going to be happy to hear that. But listen to this. They use preferred stock there, and they use it actively. What is preferred stock? It's non-tax deductible debt. It's non-tax deductible debt. And at the same time, uh, there's no bankruptcy risk. And so the companies that I just, just described, the six or seven industries that are clearly volatile, they're the ones who should say to themselves, it's time for us to take a real hard look at this because we don't want bailouts. We don't want more of what we had back in 07, 08, 09. We don't want that. But we want people to do things sensibly. Do I think the tax cut is a good thing? I sure do. Hey, listen, right now we're growing at 3% plus. The tax bill goes through, it'll be over 4%. That's why the stock market is so strong. And ROTC, return on capital, is going right through the roof. We're going to, the economy is going to be so strong next year, you're going to have to hold my feet down for me to say to you, can you believe what happened here all because of this? We're going to have to hold his feet down, Pim. <laughs> you know, I will say, though, just right. really quick, 10 seconds, sure. uh, preferred shares, if yeah. companies do start to issue a lot mm -hmm. more of those in lieu of debt. Right. The net benefit to stocks will be less, right? Yes, but on the other hand, the bankruptcy risk for the companies that do use this will mitigate that loss in value. So they might go up in creditworthiness. They and, will. Uh, yeah. Right, absolutely. Fascinating. Thank you yeah. so much for joining us. This is truly a very helpful perspective. Joel Stern, uh, who is chairman and chief executive officer of Stern Value Management based in New York, just back from some coochie-goo <laughs> coochie -goo with absolutely. his grandchildren in, right. uh, in South Africa. Pam, there was a, a story that really caught my eye today about an MIT study that suggests that the U.S. vastly overstates its oil output forecasts. And here to talk about the implications of this study is Mark Rosano, energy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mark, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Can you just walk us through this study and explain the implications for the price of crude? Sure. So thanks for having me. Uh, the, the biggest implication is really the methodology in which the EIA is trying to project what the production numbers will be, you know, given the fact that 
it's hard to dictate what what is technology going to be four years out. What are things going to look like? So the MIT uh, study really kind of honed in on a, a proper or at least a regression that will help us kind of identify what the growth will look like. You know, the problem when you look at the overall study itself, though, is it's it's using the Bakken, which is, you know, just given the size of the data set, it makes it a lot easier. But when you think of uh, where the growth is going to originate and come from on a go-forward basis, it's really going to be the Permian. So when you think of things from the perspective of, you know, Bakken versus Permian, you know, the Bakken is measured in hundreds of feet with the Permian measured in thousands of feet. I mean, just think of three freedom towers sitting on top of each other. I mean, that's what we're working with, uh, working with in West Texas. So realistically, I think it's a very good way of, of analyzing and, and looking at things going forward. But then the problem is how do we take that and extrapolate it out into uh, West Texas? I'm probably going to get myself in trouble here, but I'm quoting you, so we'll both be in trouble. Longer is better. And this has to do, as you just described, with the technology that is allowing horizontal drilling, in some cases, to go to four miles. There's a recent story that Eclipse Resources drilled a horizontal well in Ohio that is nearly four miles in length. That is... I mean, that's astounding. And also Chesapeake Energy, ExxonMobil, Continental Resources, they've all broken that three-mile mark. How can a study from MIT not take notice of the fact that you are now drilling wells that are four miles long horizontally? Well, and that's the thing is, is looking at what is the overall spacing, how many stages are there, and what is the cost? So you have to factor in on a geological level, you know, what kind of um, uh, hydrocarbon are we going for? Is it natural gas? Is it heavy oil? Is it light oil? Because each one has a, their own pitfalls when it comes down to geography and uh, and well construction. So if you look at the uh, what the has been achieved within the Marcellus and the Utica up in that northeast region, you know, we've seen significant gains in terms of length and cutting cost, as well as sand loadings, just in terms of prop in. And we've been able to replicate that pretty much across the uh, the country to increase the amount of recoveries. And that's a big cost savings, right? Because you said that, you know, if you do a 10,000-foot lateral well, that's 20% less in cost than if you do two 5,000-foot uh, wells. Correct. So when you look at it from the perspective of going forward, you know, you want to consolidate your acreage, you're starting to see that, and and have the ability to, to do those longer laterals. So as you start to stack the different pays, and just by looking at the different shale locations within the Permian, you know, you have an, this unencumbered uh, growth that will only really be impeded by the takeaway, not so much by the uh, production. And I just want to underscore a message uh, from a listener, Harry Shapiro at Shapiro Capital, saying those are gas versus oil wells, correct? Correct. Okay. So the difference is at this point, when you're looking at the actual hydrocarbon, natural gas flows freer and, and is easier to get out. So when you think about as the molecule itself becomes more complex, which is, you know, the Bakken has a little bit heavier oil where the Permian is a little bit lighter, we should be able to see a uh, more uplift by uh, replicating some of the technologies just as we learn more and more. I mean, we've had three iterations of uh, well, well structures and recipes within the Permian, and each one has grossly um, outperformed the previous, just given the knowledge base that we've been able to develop. So, Mark, real quick, 
30 seconds. It sounds like you're thinking that the MIT study is compelling, but U.S. shale production is going to go strong. Yes. And it, it's just a matter of you You have to take that tech, the, the methodology that was used and try to replicate that into something where the data set isn't as strong just because we're still very early stages in the Permian. And once we start to continue those, those recipes and learn more, we'll be able to do more with less. Thanks very much for being with us. A pleasure. Really interesting stuff. Mark uh, Rosano is our energy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I encourage you to read his work on the Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.